Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of On the Flight Line. I'm your host, Marcus Gropel, and we're very excited today because I'm honored to be sitting across from a veteran who served two wars, World War II and Korea. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Dan Oldwidge. Welcome. Glad to be here. So before we, we, we talk about your career, uh, I want to talk about how did we get so lucky to have you here at Lion Air Museum? How did you, how did you end up here at Lion? Well, I heard about the pay scale. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I thought, well, that sounds like a, a, a good thing. A so. good thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, uh, uh, I visited the museum. I liked it, so I bought a membership. And I uh, liked the, the group of docents that was on that day. So I thought, you know, might be Maybe. good to come back on Friday. <laughs> so I came back for a couple of Fridays after that. And and, and Jade took my my membership card away from me and gave me a, a shirt. And I was in. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm not a docent. I'm a volunteer. And I still don't know what that means, but... <laughs> Nonetheless, it's, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Oh, but we're, we're so lucky. We're so lucky to have you here. Uh, <laughs> uh, docents are um, people who take you on these guided tours, and they show you every little bit of the museum. But for our most valuable players, we like to consider them volu volunteers as they have these wonderful stories to tell. And we don't want them, you know, to have to take people around. We want them to be able to tell their story to to our guests and that's why we, we like to call you a volunteer instead of okay. a docent <laughs> you don't have to do the tours i'll have to make up some new stories <laughs> <laughs> so um tell us a little bit so um you're here on you're here you're here mostly on fridays yes. right what, what do they call what is your what is your group called because i know you guys have a nickname for your group uh, the tail spinners tail spinners that's it <laughs> <laughs> okay so um Let's talk about how you got started in the service. What, how did you get involved with going into the Air Force? Well, in 1943, I was a senior in high school, and uh, the war was banging along pretty good, you know, and I thought, I was 17 years old, and I thought, I want to get into the Navy. So I looked into the Navy, and they said, yeah, you can, you can volunteer, but at 17, I needed my dad's uh, authorization. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I asked my dad to sign for sign for me, why uh, he said no. He, he obviously he was smarter than me. <laughs> he said no. He said you're going to finish high school. And uh, well, in the meantime, why uh, I was disappointed, of course. But at assembly one day in high school, why uh, the Air Force? This was in Tucson, mm -hmm. and Davis Montan Field had just opened, and uh, the Air Force had a program at assembly and they had a program where you could go into the uh, flying program uh, you could sign up at 17 take your physical get all of the uh, uh, qualifications done and uh, then they would take you when you were 18 mm -hmm. so uh, I turned 18 in August of 43 in September I was in basic training <laughs> in the Air Force and uh, supposedly going into the pilot training program. Uh, they sent us uh, after basic training. We went to Springfield, Missouri for uh, uh, college training detachment. And that was about a four-month course, and it was a pretty accelerated course. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I got through it, but I wasn't the top student, of course, but <laughs> I did get through it. Get through it. And uh, on to pre-flight. And uh, there they did the qualifications for uh, pilot, navigator, bombardier. And uh, I qualified the same grade for all three. And I thought, mm -hmm. wow, I'm going to have my choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was wrong there. Uh, the, pilot, the, um, pro the pilot program was uh, pretty much winding down. They had mm -hmm. so many pilots. That, and I didn't want to be a navigator. And I didn't want to be a bombardier. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be a gunner, but they wanted me to be a gunner. <laughs> so they sent me to gunnery school, mm -hmm. and I, I enjoyed it after I got in. And uh, then to armament school in Denver. And then uh, we went to Tonopah, Nevada for transition training. 
assigned to B-24s. I was trained on 17s and 24s. Got on B-24s and, and then overseas from there. And Pacific Theater went down to New Guinea and joined the 43rd Bomb Group, the 65th Bomb Squadron. And that was called the Kensman at that time. General Kenny mm -hmm. uh, led the bomb group. And uh, we moved up to Clark Field uh, in the Philippines. And from there, moved up to Aishima, an island off of Okinawa. And from Aishima, the 24 could reach Kyushu, Japan, the mm -hmm. southernmost island. It could reach it and get back, so that was important. Uh -huh. <laughs> get back, go as long yeah. as you can get back. And yes. the 24 had pretty good range. So uh, our missions then were all on Kyushu. Mm -hmm. uh, the last mission of the, war, of the war was on August the 9th, and uh, uh, that our target was USA, USA. Of course, I didn't know this was the last mission at the time, but uh, I, I thought, Afterwards, I thought that's really appropriate getting the bomb USA <laughs> on the uh, to end the war. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, that what that had no effect on ending the war. Mm -hmm. But on the route to the target, why we had to go up to the lower part of Honshu and turn south onto the target area on Kyushu, and uh, we encountered this humongous cloud. Uh -huh. We didn't know what it was. Uh, we were flying about. 20,000 feet, give or take a little bit. And uh, we were looking, I was in the nose turret. Mm -hmm. and I was looking straight up like this at the top. That thing. It, has, it must have been up to 50,000 feet. Wow. And uh, talking to the pilot on the intercom, I said, look at that weather phenomenon out there. What is it? You know, nobody mm -hmm. knew. Nobody knew. We, we thought it was a storm of some kind, a, a weather phenomena. And uh, so we went ahead and turned south and hit our target and went back to Aishima. And that night, why the, all, the alarms go off in the campsite and, mm -hmm. and they told us to get over to supply and get a gas mask. They thought the Japanese were gonna retaliate. That's the first we learned what it was, uh, was that night. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the, uh, they thought the Japanese were going to retaliate with gas and uh, so they issued gas masks to us and uh, well nothing happened and so uh, that all went well and Aishima is where the the uh, Japanese consul landed the Jap Betty landed there on their way to the Philippines mm -hmm. to set up the process of signing a peace agreement and, on the Missouri and uh, so that's pretty much the story of World War II I didn't get a lot of missions in but uh, and most of the missions were pretty uneventful in that time of the war. We did some subsearching missions and stuff like that, but uh, uh, wasn't wasn't too exciting. Mm -hmm. At any rate, why uh, I didn't have enough points in when the war ended to rotate home, and so they sent me up to Japan to Atsugi Air Base, and. Uh, they didn't need armors anymore. They didn't need gunners anymore. Mm -hmm. So they made me an assistant to the base doctor. And uh, so <laughs> uh, that had some uh, benefits because mm -hmm. uh, I had the uh, usage of ambulances and I could go wherever I want, whenever, whenever. I want. <laughs> right by the MPs, just turn mm -hmm. on the light, you know, and mm -hmm. buzz no, by. No, no limits, no, <laughs> no limits. They never stopped me. So. Mm -hmm. so I had a good time in Japan and finally got enough points uh, about the same time I got enough points to rotate home, they wanted to send me to R&R &R up on Mount Fuji. And so I flipped a coin and I made it come out. I'll, I'll go home. <laughs> so uh, I did. I went on home and uh, got out of the service. In the process, uh, uh, going through the lines to check out, why uh, sergeant asked me, he said, uh, have you thought about getting in the reserves? And I said, I haven't thought a minute about it. And I said, I don't want to have to go to summer camp every year. And mm -hmm. I said, I want to get to work, and I don't want to be interrupted with camps. And He says, well, you can join the inactive reserve. I said, well, what good is that? He says, well, you maintain your, your stripes. I thought, well, okay. So I was a staff sergeant, and I thought, oh, that's okay. I'll do that. That was a mistake because... A few years later, why, 
uh, Korean War starts, and and uh, they, there was no question about who's going to go. The inactive reserve, so I got called. My orders read for 12 months, and uh, I thought, well, you know, I can put in a year pretty easily. So, uh, uh, the, by the way, while I was out of the service, I went to school as well as trying to hold down a job and uh, jobs were difficult to get following World War II. Was it difficult? Oh. Because there were so many servicemen getting out. Coming, oh, coming home yeah. after the... and uh, it was real competition to get mm -hmm. a job. Uh, I got hired by Sears Roebuck and I was a flunky and uh, they opened the new store in Inglewood so uh, I was a flunky in the flooring department. And, uh, What's a flunky? That's bottom of the... Bottom of the echelon. Oh, <laughs> so there's oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So, so uh, you know, he, he, I call him a gopher. Go Anything they want it done, get mm -hmm. a gopher. Get the, yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, I, uh, uh, but it was a job, and that mm -hmm. was okay. But uh, so I, they recalled me for twelve months and uh, gave up the job and got out of school and uh, went back in service, and they assigned me to B twenty nines. <laughs> so you were you were um, how long were you in the inactive at the time when you were going you were going to school going well, to work? Let's see, I got out in uh, I got out in um, January February of uh, nineteen forty six uh, nineteen forty six and uh, I was recalled in July of nineteen fifty mm -hmm. so. Uh, I was out a little, almost, almost four yeah. full years, yeah. Okay. And uh, um, anyhow, I uh, went back in, and they put me on B-29s, and I was assigned uh, to be a tail gunner on a B-29. Well, first I was a blister gunner, and when they assigned me to the crew at March Field, why uh, Marvin King was the tail gunner assigned to that crew, and he was brand new uh, no experience whatsoever so uh, the pilot shifted our positions and put me in the tail and put Marvin in the blister and uh, uh, so that was okay and I called it my apartment back there because of course the B-29 is pressurized so it was pretty comfortable actually small but comfortable and uh, so we started uh, we were sent to Okinawa and uh, uh, started our missions, and all of our missions were uh, up in uh, North Korea, of course, and and uh, uh, I got in 10 missions. Uh, B-29 in those days was having a lot of engine problems, so two of them, two of our missions we had to abort because of engines, lost two engines on one mission, so that was a, that was scarier than getting shot down. <laughs> I thought we were going to have to ditch, but... Uh, at any rate, why, uh, on the 10th mission, it was uh, supposedly a pretty important mission because it was uh, the bridge connecting uh, Sinuiju, North Korea, which is now Anju or something like that, but to uh, Antong, China. And uh, uh, it was one of the main supply routes for, uh, for the Chinese to come into Korea. And uh, <clears throat> it was, uh, I can't, figure I can't remember how many planes were in the uh, on the mission but three bomb groups were involved and uh, we uh, got to the target area and of course because of windage we had to be over China which was restricted airspace mm -hmm. and uh, so we were actually right over the the uh, uh, Russian base in Antung mm -hmm. when we released our bombs for the bridge and uh, uh, the bridge was hit, but unfortunately wasn't destroyed. Uh, they had uh, they had packed freight cars full of rocks to absorb the shock because they knew what the target was going to be mm -hmm. as soon as we started on our mission. But uh, at any rate, we were jumped by the MIGs right away, and uh, we weren't pulling enough power to to keep up with the formations. We were flying slot. Uh, we were the ECM, electronic countermeasure plane, for that formation. And we were gradually dropping back, and so the MiGs uh, 
hit us pretty heavy and uh, 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 did a lot of damage to the tail section and the, and the elevator and uh, pilot lost control and it was going down so the alarm bell went off so everybody in the back end of the plane bailed out uh, unbeknownst to me all of the guys in the midwaist where the most of the gunners were they all jumped and I saw these parachutes opening and I thought yikes that's us <laughs> so I went out mm -hmm. I had to go out through a little window in the tail and uh, uh, I didn't I always thought I'll never fit through that but it was not a problem uh, once I stuck my head out it just sucked it me right out <laughs> pulled you right out of the plane yeah. but uh, so that was it there was uh, seven of us there was uh, actually our crew was 10 but we had three extra people on board electronics people and uh, so there were 13 on board seven of us in the after the plane bailed and that lost enough weight in the tail section for the pilot to regain some control mm -hmm. uh, he knew he could never land the plane but uh, he he was able to fly level and head south and so uh, I learned afterwards that uh, we had no idea what happened to them, but we learned afterwards that they did reach Suwon and were able to bail and picked up by friendlies. Mm -hmm. So uh, so everybody got out, 13 of us. Seven of us were taken prisoner mm -hmm. and uh, held prisoner for two and a half years, uh, which was uh, not a good experience, but... Uh, uh, if you want, if you want the details of it, buy Dan King's book, <laughs> uh, the Yalu River Boys, and uh, uh, he did a fine job. Dan King was the son of uh, one of our gunners, mm -hmm. and uh, one of my namesakes. I've got three namesakes off the crew, which uh, to this day I don't know whether it's because they hated me or or loved me. I don't know which, <laughs> but uh, uh, they were they were mostly. Well, there, there was another gunner that was a World War II veteran, but most of them were young kids, you know. As we weren't old, but mm -hmm. we were much older than they were. So I guess that accounted for it. Anyhow, uh, we all survived, uh, fortunately, and uh, uh, that pretty much tells the story. We, we got out on the last exchange mm -hmm. of the Korean War, and... Uh, so can we talk a little bit about um, that the moment that you you landed in North Korea, if that's yeah, okay? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was coming down, and I could see the approximate area where I was going to hit, and all I could see was a barbed wire fence, and all these little stubbles sticking up out of the ground. I thought that's going to hurt. Well, it didn't. Uh, it was it was an old uh, rice paddy that was had been harvested and so these were just the stubbles left and they were dry so they just bent over when I hit but uh, I didn't have my leg straps completely tight so the dinghy that I was sitting on was attached was down behind my knees and when I hit the ground why that thing came up and hit me in the back and uh, I thought it broke my back but uh, so I was I was out on the ground there and and after a short time, why I got up on my hands and knees and uh, looked across the the rice paddy, and there was this little old guy standing there, farmer, and uh, I didn't know what to do. I I couldn't go anywhere, so mm -hmm. uh, I just put my hands on my head. I didn't have a weapon. I never carried the, the forty-five. It was, just took up room, so. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just put my hands on my head and said, friendo, you know. I didn't know how to speak Japanese or mm -hmm. Korean, so I just said friendo and thought maybe he'd get the get the point. Well, there's no such word as friendo in Korean language. <laughs> Anyhow, he came over. He was an old, older fellow. He came over and saw that I was in pain, and he helped me and got me up and uh, let me lean on him, and he took me to his mud shack and laid me out on the floor and told his wife to boil some water and she boiled some water at least I think that's what he told her because that's what she did mm -hmm. so and uh, they brought me some hot water and uh, he was 
he he wasn't belligerent or anything. He he didn't hate me. I didn't hate him. And so uh, it was, he helped me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was about 45 minutes or an hour be- before the the military got there. And boy, we could hear the trucks coming. And I thought, oh man, you know, now what? And well, they they thought that I obviously had a pistol and they thought I'd given it to him. So they ransacked his barn and him and everything else and trying to locate that. And I kept saying, no, no, you know. <laughs> but uh, so they took me away and, and uh, they had a group of guys with rifles and uh, we started to march towards a village and uh, as we marched, why they would gather a crowd, you know, and everybody was, they wanted to see a, an assassination. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we, we neared the village and came to a drainage ditch along the road, dirt road. And so they put me down in the drainage ditch and they got down in there and uh, I was, my hands were tied and everything. So uh, it was a firing squad and the, the crowd was cheering, you know, they wanted to see an assassination. <laughs> I thought, well, this, this Everybody has a time, and this is my time, but uh, they fired over my head. And, of course, everybody, Ray, they thought they thought I, they were going to see me die, but it, it didn't happen. And so they, the crowd dispersed then after that. They were disappointed, so they took me into the village and put me in a house there. With, and there was another gunner from a B-29 that, out of Japan that had exploded, and... Uh, he had bailed. He was the only guy to bail before the explosion. And there were two other survivors, but they were blown out of the plane. Mm-hmm. And one of them woke up on the ground. He doesn't know how his chute was deployed. But the other guy, uh, was a, uh, both were blister gunners. The other guy was still in his seat mm-hmm. with his uh, seatbelt uh, seat mm-hmm. on, still in the seat, and had to get out of that seat and pull his chute midair. And how he did it, I don't know. But anyhow, uh, those two survived, but they were both injured badly. But the guy that bailed, uh, he uh, he later died in camp. He he wouldn't eat, and you know, he just kind of gave up. So uh, he did die, and but the other two survived. So uh, uh, where were we going with this? <laughs> I think we were we were. Oh, uh, okay. Then uh, uh, from from that we spent a few nights in that little house, and and uh, then they came and took us, and we headed north to Sinawiju, and uh, got to Sinawiju next day, and and uh, put in jail there, and lots of interrogation in Sinawiju. That was the interrogations by the North Koreans were not pleasant, but. At any rate, we uh, got through that, put in jail for a few nights, and middle of the night, why one of the nights, why they came in and got me and took me to the, marched me to the river and put me in a in a rowboat, made me lay down on the bottom of the boat, and a guy started paddling across the river, and I thought, yikes, we're going across the river. That'll put me in China. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't want to go to China, <laughs> but at any rate, they they had a a guy on the opposite shore with a flashlight directing the the boat over there. Got over there and there was a truck waiting, and they put me in the truck and took me to the uh, air base in Antung, put me in solitary there, and uh, uh, I thought, well, this I'm in solitary. That's it, but. That went on for I don't know how many days because I kind of lost track of time there. But then they started the interrogations with the Chinese and uh, uh, spent, I don't know how how many days, maybe 10 days in in solitary there. But then they moved me to a a little old schoolhouse closer into Antung, China. And uh, that's where the rest of the crew was. And there we had the Russians interrogating us. The two Russians that shared the kill uh, on the B-29 did the interrogation. And uh, their interrogation was easy. 
compared to the Chinese and the North Koreans. But because uh, uh, they knew exactly what happened. So there was, it was an easy interrogation with them. Uh, but I, I, they didn't, they didn't maltreat us or anything. They, they were okay. And from there, they took, eventually took us back across the bridge that we were supposed to have knocked out, knocked out. <laughs> and back into Sinawiju. And then we headed south. And uh, that's, that's when the prison life really began to get bad. We were put in jail in Ponyang. And uh, uh, the uh, jail was one of the few buildings still standing. And they marched us through the streets and everything. And the, uh, the people were pretty unhappy with us, of course. And mm -hmm. they would throw anything, in, including uh, stuff you don't want to talk about at us. Oh. <laughs> and uh, uh, they, they were... They were really upset, and rightfully so. But we were put into cells that were actually just steel cages in the middle of the basement of this jail, and uh, we were not. Allowed, we were crowded into these cells. These cells, they were about ten by ten, and uh, we were not allowed to lean against the bars. If you did, why they had a big pole that they would jab you with, and so you learned to sit back to back and away from the bars. Mm -hmm. Uh, no sanitation, a uh, little five-gallon galvanized garbage can for for a toilet. No, no cleanliness of any kind. Uh, held there for uh, I can't remember exactly how many days, but and then we started the march, and we started a march to the west, and uh, we marched for couple of days and ended up in a in a farm and we were housed in a barn and every night I don't know what was near the barn but it was whatever it was was beyond further to the west must have been a military target because the A26s would come over every night and they'd release their rockets right above, right above the, wow. uh, the barn you know and we thought wow I hope they know what they're doing mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, it was kind of scary but we weren't there too long, and that's where we left the the guy that had bailed out of the uh, 29 from Japan. Uh, he didn't want to go any further. He he was giving up, so he stayed there, and he died a few days later, we heard. But uh, they started the march towards the caves, mm -hmm. which we didn't know anything about the caves, but it turns out that's a detention cap for, uh, camp for uh, people that weren't cooperating and uh, we didn't know we had to cooperate <laughs> we, we didn't know we were being uncooperative either but anyhow they they didn't think we were worth keeping so and the negotiations hadn't started yet and we didn't know that but uh, every day in the case I mean that was it was it was filthy dirty it was just uh, they were actually bomb shelters that were dug into the side of the hill and, and covered with thatch. And they they were wet all the time, and uh, everybody was sick, and the guys couldn't couldn't get out of the cave to uh, relieve themselves or anything like that. So it was just dirty, filthy. We were getting fed a little handful of grain a day, and water was scarce. And what water we got was putrid, so... Uh, the death rate was extremely high, about a, a guesstimate about 40%. So uh, we were losing guys all the time. Uh, we, we stuck together, though, and so helped each other best we could. And uh, one day after, I don't know how long we were in there, but too long, uh, they, the North Koreans came in and the guards and got us out and they wanted to leave the sick there and we, we said we all go or none of us go and uh, it worked so they they let us take the sick ones and which I was one of At any rate they started marching us up uh, away from the caves and we thought well whatever wherever they take us will be better than this and uh, we we reached uh, the Taedong River and we were on the south 
southeast side of the river, which was southeast of Punyang. And uh, the guards stopped, and they said we could get into the river. Wow, you know, we could get clean. We were lice infested. And mm -hmm. So we got in, clothes and all, and took our clothes off and turned them inside out to try to get the lice out of the seams. And uh, it was it was uh, an awakening. Mm -hmm. I was so skinny, I could put my hands around my thigh just like that. Just... Uh, At any rate, by uh, down to skin and bones, you know, and the guy said, Old Witch, you weigh about 80 pounds. <laughs> wow. <laughs> My bones weigh that much. Wait, so. Uh -huh. so at any rate, by, uh, we, we got out, and, 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 you know, getting clean for the first time was, was worth it. And uh, we marched up the, the banks of the Taedong and got to a raft, and uh, they had, it was driven with a pole, and... They pulled us across the river and then uh, uh, marched us into a camp there. And that was a peace camp, they called it, it was Camp 12. And, uh, of course, we had no control of where we were or where they were taking us. So, But that was uh, probably the thing that saved most of our lives was getting into that camp because the food was better, mm -hmm. uh, sanitation was better, and... We can we ran our own camp, mm -hmm. so we were we were just better off that way. Uh, so anyhow, I was there until about uh, November. I, that was probably July or August. There in November, and they vacated the whole camp. We started north, back to the Elu, and. Uh, Initially, were taken to Camp Five, which was the original camp. Uh, well, what had happened, and we didn't know, the peace talks had had begun, and the prisoners were one of the points. So, uh, all of a sudden, we had some value. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what saved us was those peace talks, and even though the prisoners' situation didn't come up right away, why? It was on the agenda, so uh, that that meant we had value and someday we'd get out, maybe. So anyhow, we went back to uh, uh, Camp 5, was the original camp that was on the Yalu. And uh, they took, we were only there uh, maybe a week or so, but they took all of the uh, Air Force enlisted men, the Navy and the Marine enlisted men, and moved us up up river to camp 2 excuse me which uh, was an officers camp and that really puzzled us initially but once i i got to camp 2 i figured it was just a matter of logistics mm -hmm. uh, they needed to fill out that camp and there weren't enough officers to do that so uh, they took smaller groups because the Army had so many prisoners uh, compared to the Air Force and the Marines and the Navy. So uh, that, and the Turkish Army too, they took those enlisted men and put them in that camp, which filled out camp too. And there, there again, the camp was run by the prisoners. So, uh, well, I say run by it, it was dictated by the Chinese, but uh, we did all of the laboring and everything maintained the camp had our own cooks and so it was it was livable and uh, uh, every once in a while we'd be able to get out of camp be, go on work details up up in the hills to chop wood and bring down for the winter and go down to the river and haul sacks of daikon back and put them in the uh, uh, underground cellar for for the winter time, and uh, daikon is just a, a crummy vegetable. <laughs> Very water-based <Yeah>. vegetable. <laughs> but uh, we had a lot of that, and so anyhow. But uh, we we existed there, and and the quarters were okay. Mm -hmm. It was an old school house, but uh, uh, we eventually built uh, 
bunks to get off the floor after after about the first year there and uh, uh, so it was livable mm -hmm. obviously and so that's where we stayed until they started the exchange and and then uh, uh, they had an early exchange for the uh, ones that needed hospitalization right away uh -huh. and uh, so they left in August and uh, <clears throat> then they moved us out in uh, September and well actually moved us out the end of August because it uh, took several days to by truck and and train <laughs> the train ride was old boxcars you know and, mm -hmm. and the rails uh, all of the bridges had been bombed out so mm -hmm. the train would go so far then you'd have to move walk around, across, across <laughs> and go to another car you'd get to another train and get on that box car and they'd take it to the next bridge and got through the mountains that way but uh finally got down to a camp that they had established close to the to the uh, dmz and uh, uh, we uh, stayed there until they called your name out and uh, each day when i got there why it was really crowded and boy each day a bunch would leave you know and your name would wouldn't be called and I began to wonder, well, what's gone wrong? Why isn't my name Wait, called yeah. the last the la day? The la oh, the last day. <laughs> the last exchange, yeah. They called my name, so I, I got out on the 5th of September, and uh, that was the last exchange of the prisoners. And uh, they uh, uh, took us across the DMZ, took us to the Freedom Bridge, and then from there we walked to the gate and got through. And once we got through, I... There was this big Marine standing there. You wanted to hug the guy. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, why they uh, took us right away to a uh, hospital area, mm -hmm. and uh, they had a, a field shower set up, and we threw all of our Chinese clothes into a pile, and I hope they burned them. I'm sure they did. Mm -hmm. And we were able to shower and get cleaned up, and uh, in the process of all of this moving around towards the for the exchange why uh, I buddied up with the army guy that he was an interesting guy he had a girl in every port that's nope. all he could talk about was getting back where you could see <laughs> I thought boy what a what a BS artist <laughs> and, and after we left the shower they sprayed us with DDT you know and mm -hmm. and uh, we're heading into the hospital tent and I heard this voice all around Danny I looked up on the knoll there, and, and there was a colonel standing up there, female colonel. It was my brother-in-law's sister. Oh. She was an anesthesiologist for MASH, and she had been up there. Well, she was assigned to the hospital there, but she had been out there every day for the exchanges, waiting to see me come across. <laughs> so I ran up, and... Got a big hug out of her, and this guy standing there, you know, <laughs> he couldn't believe it. <laughs> I couldn't shake him after that. <laughs> so that was pretty exciting. And I, I think I was the only guy to be met by a female. <laughs> During that whole process, set, you were the... <laughs> set some sort of record. <laughs> Anyhow, I, uh, that pretty much wound it up from there. We went to the hospital and, and then uh, processed and eventually got on board the General Brewster for the ride home, two-week ride home to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And uh, they that was a good thing. At, at first, we were upset about being sent back by ship, mm -hmm. but it was a good thing because it gave us a chance to adjust our diet mm -hmm. where we could uh, take the rich foods, you know, uh -huh. everything. So uh, it, it, was, it was okay. Mm -hmm. uh, got to San Francisco, and uh, my parents had come up from Southern California, and I had a sister living in San Francisco, she and her family. So uh, I was met by all of them and an old buddy from from school, why he was in the Bay Area, so uh, he met us and it was exciting. Uh, unfortunately, I, I uh, went out and got plastered about the first <laughs> So, but anyhow, <laughs> but it, uh, yeah, you had to have some. Fun. You had to have. Yeah, you have to have some fun. You know, you you you've come back. You've you're you're now. Um, 
I have a question for you though. When you were being transferred over to the, the by to the DMC, did did you, were you aware that you were going to be transferred back to um, to um, the Amer- like the the friendly? Were you were you aware of being when you were tra- being transferred over? Oh yeah, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. We knew this was from where you were going. We, we were going home. You're yeah. going home. So uh, yeah, we knew that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they they didn't want us anymore. And I don't know what the exchange rate was, how many uh, uh, North Korean prisoners they got back or Chinese prisoners they got back for each of us because, you know, we numbered in, what, roughly 5,000 and something uh, prisoners. Uh, there was over 100,000 on the island south yeah. of, yeah. So I don't know what terms they made, mm-hmm. but I'm sure we got... It wasn't one for one. <laughs> and a lot of those prisoners wanted to stay. The, the North Korean and the Chinese prisoners wanted to stay. They were better off than be. yeah. Uh, the U.S., or I shouldn't say the U.S., the allies, I think there was 20 GIs that wanted to stay, 20 or 22, something like that. And they were... Yeah, who's anyhow? <laughs> so it was good riddance. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so let's talk. So how long did it take for you to fully recover from what you had sustained? Uh, Ninety-four years. <laughs> no, uh, uh, it it it, uh, it it took a while. It took a while. Yeah. Then you're fully recovered. So what? How? So after Korea, did you officially leave the service after at that point at the end? Well, actually, I I contemplated staying in uh, because of being in the hospital, in and out of the hospital, and ha- having a lot of uh, dental work needed to be done and everything. They kept putting me on leave, mm-hmm. and I I was on leave so much I was running out of money. <laughs> Because I didn't want to sit around, you know, so I, I was having a good time. Uh, in the process, uh, I, I had gone home to my parents' house in Orange, and uh, uh, an old friend uh, and his wife came over one day and said, Dan, get a date and we'll go to the USC Wisconsin football game. He was a graduate, uh, or UCLA Wisconsin, he was a graduate of UCLA. And uh, so I thought, oh, golly, I, I don't know anybody. I've been out of circulation for three years. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> anyhow, uh, my mother had befriended a neighbor, a young couple that lived next door to them. And uh, uh, she heard this, you know, and she, she went over and talked to the, the young couple and said, do you know anybody that would go out with Dan to this football game? The immediate response, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know my mother. She was pretty persistent. <laughs> so she stayed on them, and, and finally the, the young gal uh, said, well, she said, I, I have a friend that I went to high school with. That I'll talk to her and see. Mm-hmm. So she called her, and first response was, no way. No. <laughs> I guess they thought I was some sort of an animal. But, <laughs> but anyhow, uh, uh, finally, she consented. Since uh, she learned that we would be with this other couple who were married, why it sounded like, well, maybe maybe there's some safety net there. <laughs> Group date. Group date. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, uh, we, we were very formal about it. I had arranged to pick her up at her home and... Uh, so I drove up Olive and rang the doorbell, and her mother came to the door. And her mother was a tall woman, gray-haired, beautiful woman. I thought, wow, if this doesn't work out with the daughter. <laughs> Dan! <laughs> so, so I thought I'd been through interrogation <laughs> in North Korea China. When that mother got through with me, <laughs> 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 she, 
she knew how to interrogate she, him. <laughs> she took me into the living room, and mm-hmm. we had a long talk. Oh. <laughs> and I knew then that I, I was whipped. <laughs> so the daughter walked in, and uh, truly the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. And uh, so uh, I thought, this is, this is going to be good. So we went to the game, and it was a good game. UCLA won. <laughs> we had a great time. Uh, took her home, and I told her, I said, uh, gee, I said, uh, could I call you again? She says, yeah. So every night <laughs> thereafter, uh, this was in November, late November mm-hmm. of 53, uh, uh, and every night thereafter, we had a date. I think it was the Maserati I was driving. <laughs> no, I had a new Mercury Monterey. <laughs> anyhow, we uh, uh, we enjoyed each other, and and uh, uh, it was late November when we went to the football game, and in December I said, uh, "Would you marry me?" She said, "Yeah, I'd consider it." She said, "When?" I said, January, what date was it? The 7th. She said, oh, we can't plan a wedding that that soon. I said, nothing to plan. It's all done. What do you mean? (laughs) I said, we're going to be married in your mother's living room, and it's going to be nothing but immediate family, her immediate family and my immediate family. And... uh, she says, well, you know, <laughs> she says, I've got to get a dress and everything. I said, ah, keep it simple. <laughs> simple cer- a simple ceremony. Yep. Mm-hmm. Got to, we got a Methodist minister to come in and a friend of hers for a piano player and singer. And, or singer, and my sister was a piano player, which she was very good at, incidentally. But anyhow, I, uh, uh, well, we pulled it off and... Uh, Got married the 7th of January, 54, and she kept wondering, why the 7th? And I said, well, my dad's leaving on the 8th for Florida. He goes down there every year to, to help his sister, who was retired too, and he helped her with her finances, and every year he would go down and stay a month, and then my mother would go down and stay maybe the last two weeks or 10 days and come home with him. And... Uh, so, <laughs> so she said, oh, okay, you know, it sounded like a good excuse to her. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we got married. And uh, just before we got married, we were looking for an apartment to rent. And I, my parents had kept my dog, the dachshund, mm-hmm. while I was a prisoner. And they were happy to give it back to me. I didn't know what I was going to do with the dog in the service. But, uh, and, and the girl I was going to marry had a dachshund as well so we had two dogs mm-hmm. and uh, in those days the uh, apartments didn't like to rent to you if you had pets yes. and, mm-hmm. and uh, so we were unable to get an apartment but I found a duplex in Santa Ana very nice one and uh, I convinced the lady that we could uh, uh, that they weren't house dogs I said they would stay outside I lied a little but <laughs> she said, well, if you'll build a run across the back of the lot, why, I'll rent to you. I said, okay, I'll do that. So uh, I figured once I got in, I could soften her up, you know. <laughs> but at any rate, why, uh, she said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm in the Air Force. She says, I will not rent to a serviceman. I thought, wow, th- what a great country. <laughs> Oh my goodness! She yeah. didn't. She didn't want to. She didn't well, wanna... I guess she'd had some bad experiences uh, because the Marine Corps, El Toro, you know, those people were renting and and probably had some bad experience. Anyhow, I I just shrugged it off, and so we went looking. We weren't married yet. We went looking for a house, and there was there was they were building tracks like crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. So we found a track in Northwest Santa Ana, and uh, so we looked at them and. My wife ooed and awed at some of them, you know, and I thought, maybe I can afford this. So, so I took her home, and I went back to the track, and uh, I 
found out what it would cost to get in. All it was was impounds and, and taxes to get in, 400 and some dollars, you know. I thought, wow, what a deal. What a, <laughs> what a deal, yes. yes. <laughs> so so I, I tried to, to, to buy one. They said, we can't sell to you because you're not married. I said, well, I'm going to get married. They said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, I'm going to get married January the 7th. And I said, we're... He said, well, you come in here on January the 8th then, and we'll sell you a house. I said, well, I want that specific house. That's the one my wife liked, or my wife to be liked. So he says, well, we can't guarantee it, but we'll try to save that for you. So anyhow, I took the brochure and, and uh, went up to her house that evening up in Olive, and I said, guess what? We have a place to live. Yeah, where? I says, I bought a house. <laughs> she said, you're crazy. <laughs> I said, no. I said, here it is. And I showed her the brochure. She said, we didn't look at that house. <laughs> I thought, oh, man, I've done it again. <laughs> Not married yet. Bought the wrong house. <laughs> Anyhow, she loved it. And so uh, we, we did. We got married and went down to San Diego overnight came back, signed the papers, got the deed to the house, got, got the papers on the house. Then we took off on our honeymoon and uh, for a week and, and uh, got back and here we are with a house with no furniture. <laughs> Two dogs in a house. <laughs> so anyhow, we, we, we started in and eh, it worked out. Stayed in that house for 60, well, I was in it 65 years. My, my wife uh, was in it 61 years before she passed away. So obviously we like, we like the place. Uh, I, I fully intended to stay in the service, but after uh, uh, getting a taste of civilian life again and, and all, of the, all of the baloney with the service, so I, I, was, I was actually based at San, San Bernardino, but I was TDY to Santa Ana in the Air Defense Command. I was a training sergeant. I never found out who I was supposed to train. <laughs> <laughs> never did. <laughs> so it was just a cushy job, you know, that somebody had to fill the field. So anyhow, uh, I got called out to San Bernardino to see the adjutant. And uh, so uh, I had government transportation, so I drove out there and, and uh, reported to the adjutant, and the sergeant said, have a seat. Pretty soon he said, you can go in now. And I went in, and it was a, a captain behind the desk, and it was a woman, a female captain. That's the first encounter I'd had with, with a, f a female officer in the military, you know. Well, not the first encounter, but... <laughs> <laughs> the first official encounter. But, <laughs> but anyhow, so I reported to her, and, and uh, she said, Sergeant Oldwage, you have no status in the Air Force. And I thought, that's, that's an unusual statement, you know, and kind of set me back. And I said, ma'am, I said, tech sergeants don't have much status in the Air Force. So I was trying to lighten this conversation up a little bit. I thought she'd take that as a humorous joke, you know. Well, she didn't. And I finally said, what do you mean? She said, you have to get in the, in the military or out of the military. I says, I'm in the military. She said, no, you're not. Your, your enlistment ran out years ago. Years ago? Yeah, I was recalled for 12 months, and mm -hmm. that's what my orders read. Uh -huh. She said, you've been no status for all of this time. And I said, well, I said, nobody told me about that. <laughs> and nobody told the North Koreans. <laughs> so anyhow, we, uh, she said, I said, when do I have to do this? She said, now. I said, no. I said, I just got married. And I said, we have talked about a military life. But I said, we haven't made a decision yet. And I said, I don't sign anything without my wife knowing about it. She says, you're not leaving here until you sign these, either re-enlist or get out. Mm -hmm. I says, no. I says, I have to go to the hospital. 
She says, what? <laughs> I says, I have to go to the hospital. So she had to excuse me. Mm-hmm. And so I went over to the dental lab because I knew I need some more dental work. I went to the dental lab and I saw the, the colonel, the bird colonel was the commanding officer of the dental lab. And I saw his sergeant and I said, uh, I need to talk to the colonel. Oh, yeah, everybody needs to talk to the colonel. <laughs> I says, no, I'm serious. I said, I've got, a, I've got a major problem. And I says, I need to talk to somebody. So he went in and talked to the colonel and came back out. He says, have a seat, Sergeant. So I sat there for about a half hour. And pretty soon the colonel called me in. He says, bang. He says, Sergeant, what can I do for you? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I explained explained my plight to him and I told him I said uh, I understand where she's coming from I said but you know uh, come on a few days uh, mm-hmm. is not going to make any difference yeah. after all. he says look he says how much time do you want I said well I said I do have some dental work he says we'll spread this out he said he first he asked me he said do you have government transportation I says I have a, a vehicle issued to me he said because it's a long drive to the dental lab here from Santa Ana. So I said, well, I said, that doesn't bother me I'm, as long as I'm getting paid for it. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, he says, we'll spread this out for as long as necessary. He says, a year? I said, well, probably not that long, but I said, we'll make a decision. And I said, we'll get the dental work done. So he, he said, we'll fix her water. And I thought, Colonel, don't, don't say that. <laughs> I said, I know I'll have to get out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyhow, I, uh, uh, he did. He he got the word back to her that I was on medical leave and mm-hmm. there, nobody could touch me. Mm-hmm. So, And I'd report out there and he'd do a filling. Mm-hmm. Two weeks later, he'd call me. Sergeant, you need to come out. We've got to clean your teeth. You've got to do something, you know, <laughs> one thing at one, a time. Yes. one thing at a time. <laughs> so he spread this out and he said, said just tell me when you're ready and so uh, my wife and I made the decision to get out and mm-hmm. so I told him and so I got out I don't regret it uh, mm-hmm. however uh, I did regret it because jobs were difficult to get then mm-hmm. even after so then many too people getting out but uh, perseverance and be willing to take a, a mediocre job until you found something better mm-hmm. but uh, it was all right so we struggled through it and mm-hmm. never missed a house payment. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing. That's the good thing. You never want to miss a house payment. Nope. <laughs> well, I just want to say, you know, th- thank you so much for, I know it's that was hard, you know, opening up for to those things, but we, I just want to let you know how, how truly valuable you are for our museum to be able to <laughs> tell that story to, to kids of all ages nowadays, yeah. too who yep. want to be in aviation, who want to be part of that, and we want to carry on your legacy forever. Well, most, most museums are, have a bunch of relics around, so mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have another relic here. <laughs> yeah, and we just want to say, you know, we're, always, we're eternally grateful for your service to our nation, and we, we you know, we want, we want to celebrate, you know, your, your service Wherever we go, wherever, you know, for everyone to know, everyone to hear that story. And okay, we'll have a party in August. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be 90, 90, 94. 94. Yeah. We'll party it up in 94. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much for, for joining us on our se- okay. second episode of our show. Okay. Truly thankful. You can probably edit this down to about three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of On the Flight Line. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Also, watch our video feed on the Lion Air Museum YouTube page. I'd like to thank our guest Dan Oldwich for joining us and also would like to commemorate this episode to all the fallen heroes who served our country this Memorial Day weekend. Gone, but certainly never forgotten. This has been Marcus Grobel with On the Flight Line. Till we meet again, and blue skies to you.